You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and joining us, as always, is your friend and mine from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, your child is supposed to be born this week. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Uh, kind of terrified. I'm just glad that at least, unless something goes horribly wrong in the next hour, seems like we're going to get through another podcast without it happening. Well, yeah, even if your wife goes into labor, we'll still have... Yeah. 15 hours we got to get time. this bad boy done. Yeah. And usually it doesn't take much more than that. Yeah. Relax. Yeah. Just Bake a cake or something. <laughs> um, I can tell you from experience that mine is still alive uh, four months in. So if I can do it, surely you can keep a child alive. Perhaps not. Well, I'm glad to see we're really setting the bar high here. Well, I mean, perhaps not. You, you might not be able to engineer your child to the to the finely tuned machine that mine is but i mean i have every confidence in the world that you won't allow it to perish on your watch <laughs> yeah i mean we won't say thriving but i think we could say that my my child will survive for As, a reasonable amount of time anyway for, yeah i mean at least until it could be blamed on some other factor besides parenting right yeah and come on the the apocalypse is going to come soon anyway so if you beat it by a few months or years you know who's who's to say that that's that's wrong somehow as usual, this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast comes in three rounds. In round number one, Strike Force gives up the ghost this weekend. Will it go down in history as the greatest MMA promotion ever to share the same name as a Rick Martel and Tito Santana tag team? In round number two, not exactly full stream ahead for Invicta's first effort at an internet pay-per-view. See what I, I see what you did. See it's a play on there. words. But there could be a silver lining for the all-women's promotion. Because usually it's steam, yeah, but you well, said stream. I said stream. Oh. oh. In round oh, we three, have fun. <laughs> we do have fun. In round three, Eddie Alvarez wants to eat lobster and Bellator just wants to keep serving him McRib. All that plus just saying stuff. And finally, the triumphant return of Master Tweet Theater and Sir Nigel Longstock. But first, like we always do about this time, it's listener mail. Listener mail. The first question this week comes from Brian, who, who asks, Recently, Dan Severn retired at 54 years of age with some 127 pro fights under his belt. Jeremy Horn has about 110 fights, and Travis Fulton has over 300. To what do you attribute their incredible longevity, especially given the adversity many fighters face in trying to stay healthy enough to, complete, to compete once or twice annually? Now, I would say just to get us started here that the inherent assumption made in Brian's question is that Dan Severn, Jeremy Horn, or Travis Fulton wouldn't fight if they had hurt themselves, which I think is incorrect. <laughs> the second inherent assumption is that Dan Severn, Jeremy Horn, or Travis Fulton were training particularly hard for any of these fights, which I would also say mm, probably not true. Yeah, I also think uh, just because they all had a bunch of fights, they also, I don't know if you can compare those guys on equal footing. Because, you know, Jeremy Horn was fighting in the UFC when there were real legitimately tough guys everywhere in the UFC. Uh, Dan Severn got to roll through some karate teachers and stuff like that back in the early days. Travis Fulton has that video where he kills that taekwondo guy. That's <laughs> awesome. I mean, in general, I would say... Uh, if you fight 
200 people, maybe quality of competition is one issue that we should look yeah, at. It comes, into, comes through the four. Also, yeah, as you say, uh, you can't be training that hard if you can just fight that often. Like, if you're just fighting every damn weekend, if you're fighting 10 times a year, like Dan Severin has done on in plenty of years, then there's just not that much time to really be going hard in training. Yeah. Also, though, uh, having just done a story on Dan Severn and, and got to interview him about his retirement, nobody gets the old guy jokes like Dan Severn. He's, he's well, got that's the kind of jokes been, that sh- That's always been Dan Severn's thing, though. Yes. Like, since the time he... He came debuted in the UFC. He has always come equipped with like the the same sense of humor and or mannerisms that your favorite uncle would have. Like the uncle you only see once a year at family gatherings. Uh, my favorite example, of course, is I think it's before he fights Mark Coleman when referee Big John McCarthy asks him if he has any questions. And Dan Severn responds yes. by beginning to tell a story, a mathematics story problem. And once he's done, Big John McCarthy, I think, just kind of shakes his head and walks away from him. Just yeah, kinda... Big John was really cool about that because uh, I expected him to at least be, you know, a little bit, a little bit weirded out that this guy was trying to pull this stuff right before the fight. But Big John was just like, "Okay, let's go out there and be serious, all right?" Something like that. <laughs> I expected uh, him to give an honest effort to try to answer the question, but I, I guess not. Um, among the old guy jokes he told. Uh, claimed that uh you know he had had a good genetic head start and he knew it because he couldn't beat his mother in arm wrestling until he was a senior in high school yeah also uh joked that there you know he doesn't look too old and beat up these days although there is more salt and pepper than pepper in his hair although hey you have to ask his hairdresser what color it's really supposed to be and then in case you thought that really dan severn was going to the hairdresser to get it colored he quickly added i say that comically uh, which is a great move after you tell a joke. Severn also coined the, the term brawlability, which is one of my favorites. Uh, uh, you do love that at, term. At some UFC that he was commentating on, I believe he said well, a particular fight was going to come down to brawlability, which <laughs> always one of my Don't favorites. they always? Uh, also, last one, um, when uh, he talked about how he always wanted to wear headgear while wrestling, he says, quote, I always say, until I meet some woman who says those Randy Couture ears really turn her on, I think then I might want them. But I've never met a woman like that, so I wanted to keep my ears looking like they are. If I did meet a woman like that, she'd probably scare, she'd probably scare me off anyway. Yeah, Dan Severn. Great guy. You could just hang out in the barbershop all day with these. <laughs> Second question this week uh, comes from John Callahan, who asks, Here are two things, or here's a thing that I grow weary of. MMA fans and pundits calling for the head of Mike Goldberg. I think commentating is a lot like writing. Since most people can do the physical act of writing words, they think that writing a novel should be easy. It is not. That's in all caps. Uh, and, it, and so it goes with commentating. Since most people can do the physical act of talking, they think that commentating on, oh, say, seven hours or so of fights during the course of a pay-per-view should be simple and easy. I'll bet that it's much, much harder than it looks. Now, since you pretty much went after Mike Goldberg and you're just saying stuff last week, that's, I thought I would give you that's an inaccurate the representation. first chance to, to respond here. You know, uh, on one hand, I, I know what this dude is talking about, especially as you and I write for the Internet. We hear from plenty of people who, while they are criticizing our writing, do so in a manner that exposes them as people who don't know anything about writing. Right. Even the baseline level of communication through the written word, they don't know anything about it. You know what my favorite is? When you tell a guy you're a writer, he goes, oh, I got stories. I could, I could write a <laughs> I book. I should write a book. I could, people I could, are always telling me that. I got some stories. I could write a book. So I agree. That, sh- that shit's not easy. 
I, that is a hard job. It's a lot harder than people think. I, I If you want to see the example of why you need a good play-by-play man, look at the Invicta broadcast, which I didn't think was bad. I mean, I think all those people, uh, Julie Kedzie, Mola Wall, and Boss Rutten individually are good at what they do, but none of them is a play-by-play person, and it's glaringly obvious as soon as you don't have that. You need that... That somebody that brings a certain something to the broadcast really kind of controls it, steers the the thing where it needs to go. Uh, it's hard to do. However, I don't think I'm comparing Mike Goldberg's play-by-play uh, to what I could do. I'm comparing it to what I've heard and witnessed other people doing. I mean, other people are better at it than he is, I think. And he's been doing it for a while, but he's just kind of like a speaking spell. You could just plug it in to the Mike Goldberg apparatus, and you know exactly how it's going to come out. Yeah. Coming up next. Oh, that's pretty good. Uh, John Dotson is a, you know, and it's just like that old like, sports talk video game. It sound like you could probably just like have a soundboard of Mike Goldberg saying stuff. I wonder if they do that. Like they do for video games. Yeah, I wonder, and, like if you, if he can't make it in to do like some, uh, you know, the pre-fight uh, dubbing of while the dude's shadow boxing in the mist. You know, and the lights are flashing behind him. Like, right. and they need somebody to talk about how this guy is a, a really technical striker. You could just splice him talking about somebody else being a technical striker, and then some other time he said the guy's name, and no one would know the difference because he's just always the, that same robotic kind right. of dude. And with Goldberg, like I think you you mentioned this sort of tangentially, like uh, his play by play style is hurt a little bit by the fact that we see so much from him. I think yes, like, he's been the UFC broadcaster for so long that his style is really, really worn worn into our souls, scratched into our souls, as the Hold Steady would say <laughs> at this point. Um, and I don't come down as hard on him as a lot of people in our community uh, do because I think it's really easy to mock the broadcaster. It I is. feel like that's something that, that we all love to do. But at the same time, he you know, he does. We've seen so much from him that I feel like his, his, he's rote at this point, yeah. kind of. Um, at the same time, though, I feel like the number one criticism of Goldberg that I see on the internet a lot is that he doesn't know anything about MMA, which couldn't possibly be true at this point. Like, <laughs> that dude has watched so many fucking fights that he must know more about mixed martial arts than the fans who are decrying him for not knowing anything right. about it. And I agree that it is a really easy thing to just pile on the broadcaster and talk shit about how terrible it is. And I don't think Mike Goldberg is awful. I don't think that you know we have to fire Mike Goldberg just as a matter of course, and then try and figure out, like, okay, we'll replace him with anybody but Mike Goldberg, and it'll be an improvement. I do think, though, if you put him side-by-side with John Anik, John Anik is the better play-by-play guy. Well, sure, yeah. I I mean... (laughs) Anik's a step above anybody else in the industry I think is better than he is, you know? I mean, that's what I'm comparing it. I'm not saying that, like, I think I could do that job better than Mike Goldberg, because I'm pretty sure I couldn't. Uh, But I think both Anik and Mauro Ranallo do it better. That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, we've got an awful lot to get to this week, um, so we're going to go ahead and get started in round number one. As always, if you've got a question, comment, or concern for the podcast that you want to air to us for consideration to be read in, in future weeks, you can get in touch with us by going to the website and clicking on the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. As for now, we're going to go ahead and roll straight into round number one. Ben, it will be like the crescendo of a great symphony this weekend 
when Strike Force finally reaches a state of utter perfection and transforms itself into pure energy. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful, man. Like most things do when they come to an end of a run of greatness, it'll happen at the Chesapeake Energy Center in <laughs> Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So I guess my question for you to begin round number one is, once it's all said and I guess mercifully done, how are you going to remember Strike Force? Well, before we get to that, if we could keep with your analogy of the symphony, I think it's important to add it would be like that beautiful symphony if all the musicians in it wanted out desperately. <laughs> and some of them had for months now uh, been preparing to play at the symphony only to be told at the last minute, no, stay home. Uh, and then now are finally showing up just drearily wandering in, lugging a cello or whatever they have in symphonies. I don't know. I don't know symphonies. Except a few of them who at this point were like, you know what? Fuck it. I've yeah. been fucked over so many times that... Yeah. I'm you gonna, won't have an oboe, asshole. Right. I'm going to stay home with my viola. Yeah. It's like a big violin. Viola. As for the question of how I'll remember Strike Force, for one thing, I think it's impossible to say because we're too close to it right now. Uh, I hope that we will be able to separate in our minds the pre-Zufa purchase Strike Force uh, and the post-Zufa purchase Strike Force. Uh, I have a feeling that they might bleed together on us as time passes. Uh, and I think that would that would be unfair to Strike Force. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, though, that, uh, Strike Force actually got some stuff. I mean, as much as we like to joke about how terrible it was, it got some stuff done. Like Ronda Rousey came from Strike Force. Fedor, a lot of great fighters came Fedor from Strike Force. Fedor fought in Strike Force. You know, Daniel Cormier is probably going to be a force either at light heavyweight or heavyweight, wherever Absolutely. he decides to be. Kung Lee uh, transitioned into MMA through Strike Force. Uh, no, and, uh, you know, putting together that the big heavyweight Grand Prix, mm -hmm. that was just ambitious as all hell. Right. And it almost almost went okay. Well, yeah. But that's another one where the, the, you know, forces kind of conspired against them there. Yeah, but it conspired against them in a way that we could have totally expected them to, to conspire against yeah. a company that planned a, an ambitious and like more than a year long tournament in the most fraught with difficulty weight class in the entire sport and including some of the most difficult personalities in the entire sport. And I just want to say, I'm still mad that my pre tournament pick Shane Del Rosario, who I picked to win the strike force grand prix, even though he wasn't in it, got in a car wreck and was injured for it. Cause I feel like he really would have had a shot. First of all, that was a cynical pick by you to begin with. Yeah. You, you picked him. Wait, who won it again? <laughs> you picked who won him. the Strike Force <laughs> Daniel Cormier won it. Was he in the draw? He was I, an alternate. Okay. Uh, you you picked it, Shane Del Rosario because... Because I knew none of the dudes in the draw would, would win. Because would you final. believed Strike Force's luck was so bad and that the heavyweight division was was Yeah, not even Strike Force's luck, just the heavyweight division. Like, you... If you plan a, a multi-event, year-long heavyweight tournament, I'll tell you right now, nobody in the draws winning that. <laughs> Steve fucking Nelmark Cynical. is going to come in as an alternate and win it. <laughs> you know, though, looking at this Strike Force card, the you know Strike Force euthanasia or whatever we want to call it, Strike Force everything must go. Uh, actually, kind of an awesome card yeah, in a weird they way. They pulled out all the stops, you might say, even considering the, the, the pullouts and the injuries. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you got Nate Marquardt and Tarek Safadine as the, the title fight there, and I am interested to see what uh, Nate Marquardt still has left in him. He looked great against Tyron Woodley. Uh, I don't know if Tarek Safadine is the guy anybody was really clamoring to see him get a title shot. Yeah, well, that's that's a, that's a big-time symptom of this card. There's There's a lot of good... There's a lot of good guys on there and a lot of guys that you want to see fight. I don't know that there's a lot of particularly stellar matchups, yeah. per se. Well, wait, are you saying that uh, Daniel Cormier and, and Dion S? Staring? Dion S? Are you saying that that's not, that's not the, the dream matchup you would have picked for Daniel Cormier? Well, him and then Josh Barnett is, is fighting... Nandor. Nandor... Gilmino. Gilmoreno. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, we all know what happens when you book those fights. See, one that, of those dudes is losing. Well, it would be incredibly convenient, it seems, for the UFC and Dana White if that somebody was Josh Barnett. Mm. Yeah, I suppose. And honestly, both those guys will probably win. But that's the risk you take when you book those fights is that how big of a fucking disaster would it be if somehow Daniel Cormier fucked around and lost to Dion Starring. Then you're in the Dion Starring starring business. business. Yeah. But you know, when we get back to the question of looking back on Strike Force, uh, it seems like the UFC was obviously going to be the you know, the big gorilla in the room there, uh, tossing around its weight, and the UFC had that even that you go to a live event, and the UFC has it down just like clockwork. Boom, boom, boom. They've been doing it so long, they know exactly what they're gonna do. Strike force you weren't always sure what you were going to get, which was kind of exciting. I got to say, as far as my history of attending live events, seeing uh, Fabricio Verdum, a triangle choke Fedor, and then his entire team go back to the hotel and just lose their goddamn minds drinking all night, uh, you know, that was the kind of crazy strike force shit that you could get used to. Yeah, no, I mean, they and for CBS's efforts in MMA... Uh, as compared to Elite XC, you would have to think that Strike Force was a, uh, a a serious step up in professionalism, even if it did kind of seem like a grab bag of of bizarre things, you the know, thing bizarre is, happenings. Though now it's going to make it so tough. Like the last year or so has just so heavily tarnished the Strike Force image. Like you got all the fighters that's first, you know somewhat subtly talking about how displeased they are with the way things are going. And then every time you stick a, a microphone in front of a Strike Force fighter's face, he's telling you about how bad the situation sucks. Right. And Mo Lawal carrying it, comparing it to a cancer patient that everybody just wants to see die. You know, that kind of stuff, it just like, it poisons the attitude out there about Strike Force. And I wonder if when we look back, since if we won't be like the MMA judges are, where you put undue weight on the thing you saw last, if we won't be like, well, hey, it was a pretty competitive round, but then the one guy got a takedown in the last 20 seconds and then laid there. If we'd be like, all right, 10 9. 10 9 for that guy. <laughs> so you think that the, the late stage Zufa strike force will be the equivalent of the takedown in the last 30 seconds? I'm afraid that it might. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It very well could be. Uh, aside from Cormier, like which, which one of these guys are, are going to turn out to be the most interesting uh, entrance to the UFC, I guess you would say? I heard some talk that Marquardt could get an automatic title shot or. or uh, you know, at least fight in a number one contender fight if he if he takes care of business this weekend and comes into the UFC as the reigning Strike Force welterweight champion. I'm not sure that that is an attraction that I would 
you know, be chomping at the bit to see, but like, which yeah. one of these dudes are going to make noise? Like which Gilbert, obviously I think is, is sort of the unanimous pick as the guy that we'd all like to see, uh, against the, the best fighters in the world. But is there anybody else where you're like, Oh man, I can't wait till this dude gets to the UFC. Well, um, you know, I don't see uh, Luke Rockhold being style-wise great competition for Anderson Silva right now, but I, hey, I'd watch that one. Yeah, you know? and Luke Rockhold is the kind of, uh, he's the sort of pure athlete that I think could make noise in the division. I don't know if he's going to beat the champ, but you know, he's, he's, a, he's a guy that I think it would certainly at least be interesting to see how he fares against stalwarts, longtime members of the UFC middleweight division, because we have this idea of these strike force guys as second tier fighters, you know, but at the same time, we thought the same thing about a lot of the WEC guys before they came into the UFC. And some of those guys like Donald Cerrone, for instance, have really surprised us overachieved. Or the lightweight champion, Benson Henderson. Yeah, him too. But but I mean, (laughs) Cerrone, I mean, I don't know if anybody was really expecting Cerrone to go on the tear that he's gone on coming out of out of Strikeforce. I mean, right, Henderson WC, was at least yeah. or coming out of the WC. Yeah, Henderson was at least WC champ before he came yeah. into the UFC. Well, you know, and I think that maybe that same kind of thing will happen where if a bunch of Strikeforce dudes come over and just start cracking skulls, we'll look back and go, oh well, maybe we were kind of assholes about the level of talent uh, that was in Strikeforce because. Obviously, they're pretty good. And look, I mean, you guys, guys like Nick Diaz and Alistair Overeem, who can kind of do some of that representing strike force. Uh, but, you know, I think the thing that when you look at the way that decline happened, uh, where it was clear that we were just kind of running out the clock there, like that to me still feels so unfair to the fighters more than anything who's Time is very, very valuable. They don't know how long they're going to have that athletic window open. Uh, I feel still like bitterness about that. And yet I'm not sure who to direct that bitterness to. Who do you blame? Yeah, I don't know. Let's play the blame game, as Kanye West says. (laughs) I I guess the popular guy to blame would be Showtime, right? Like, isn't that where most of the uh, criticism is going to come down on this? Since we essentially only get to hear one side of the story. Uh, in, in our tiny world, and and but, but at the same time, if you put yourself in Showtime's shoes, right, you have this deal with Strikeforce, uh, they get bought, and the UFC starts pillaging the the best stuff from it right away. Uh, I mean, you got to know, okay, we still got this deal with them, we still like some MMA, you know, it's a good good deal for them financially, uh, but at the same time, you're seeing just the the best attractions siphoned off. Yeah. I mean, what are you supposed to do there? Yeah, I don't know. And 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 this week, of course, you have the the announcement or the the claim, I guess, from from a Showtime executive that Showtime is going to stay in the MMA business. It seems to me like Bellator would be the obvious fit, but Bellator wasn't even mentioned as the among the the properties that they're looking at. And uh, kind of discussed it on Twitter today. I I I really, after having some time to think about it, think that Invicta could be the best choice there out of, especially out of the group that were that were presented to us as the properties that they're looking at i feel like invicta brings some real positives to showtime especially since at least for the time being invicta would give showtime an mma product that that was different than what the ufc is offering that's true but it also gives you a really niche product i suppose but i mean any mma product that's not the ufc is going to be that way anyway i think you might be right. And, I mean, it's probably cheaper. Uh, do we, I mean, we're already 
kind of bleeding into the Invicta talk? Is this where yeah. we just we move on? We might as well just go ahead and segue straight into round number two. Round two. Chet, Invicta 4 went down this past Saturday night from the Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas. It was supposed to be a pay-per-view event through Ustream, streaming online, uh, for the low, low price of $7.95. However, Invicta pretty quickly encountered some some problems getting people to getting to take people's orders and provide them with the stream. Uh, Ustream uh, later admitted that the problem was on their end, that they weren't prepared for the volume and uh, were using a pay-per-view system that was in the beta mode, which already seems weird to me. Seems like a bad idea. Um, But what do we take away from this? I mean, first of all, let's give Invicta credit for realizing things were going badly on the pay-per-view front and in midstream there, right there in mid event saying, okay, take down the the paywall. It's free to everybody and we'll give refunds to anybody who paid for it. Uh, I mean, that seems like the best you can do in that situation. What do we take away though from this failed online pay-per-view experiment? Well, I, the, my, for starters, we take away the hope that they didn't write a bunch of checks thinking that they were going to get a bunch of money from, from pay-per-view. Uh, the, the second takeaway is that, you know, I, I like Invicta a lot from what I've seen of their you product. You not. You're a sexist. They have a product that I, that I believe in. I think that it, it can work, and I think that they did a really good job uh, not only responding to the, the, the pay-per-view debacle, but also responding really quickly which I think is important in this day and age of, of, you know, the internet and Twitter, because that really could have got out of hand if it was, it was handled poorly uh, with, with people kind of piling on in Twitter. So I think that Shannon Knapp and and Invicta did a really good job with that. Uh, Just from looking at the numbers that were in the MMA junkie story though, and I just kind of glanced at them this afternoon, but from what she at least told, uh, was it Steve Uh, Morocco did this story. It seemed like, the number, the sheer numbers that were on there made it seem like it would be a much, and I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, it seemed to me like it would be a much more lucrative thing for Invicta to try to sell advertising on their free stream than to try to make money off, off pay-per-view because wasn't the number something like 3000 pre-orders or something like that. And then it jumped up to 70,000 when the stream went for, on for free. Yeah. It, it's tough to get a, a real fix on, Exactly how those. I mean, if you get three thousand people prepaying, I mean, Shannon Knapp did say that she was pleased with the pre-sale numbers uh, before, you know, a couple of days before the event even went off. So, you know, I can see why you would be pleased if that's what you're doing. I don't think though that Invicta really planned that this was going to be a huge money-making venture. I mean, I think that they got to the point where they were like, "Well, we've been doing this stream that seems to be doing pretty well. You got to find some way to monetize it," and it's basically either asking people to pay for the stream or putting advertisers. Yeah. Uh, as Andrew Sullivan uh, pointed out when announcing that he was taking the, the Daily Dish, which is one of my favorite political and other stuff blogs, uh, if you are not paying for the product uh, in media and, and TV and stuff, then you are the product that's being sold. So those are pretty right. much your two options. Yeah. Uh, but I think at least what Shannon Knapp told me beforehand at the event was that uh, – you know, you don't put this as at $8 on an online pay-per-view for a night of women's fights because you're hoping to, you know, 
make a half million dollars off of it necessarily. Uh, you, you do it because, or at least what she said they did it because they wanted to have some data they could show to a TV partner. I think they know that their goal is TV, mm-hmm. right? They, they're not going to be the pay-per-view online stream company, you know, five years from now and make that work. That's, yeah. that's not their end game. Well, yeah, and that makes sense. Uh, and I think like we talked about at the end of, of round number one that, uh, you know, I think that they would make a great fit for Showtime if, if Showtime executive, if those assholes over at Showtime that we keep hearing about uh, <laughs> are amenable to having women's fights on, on Showtime. Because, you know, even when you look at the streams now, uh, as you said at the top of the broadcast, a little bit weird that they didn't have a play-by-play man on this yeah. particular show because, you know, Boss Rutan does not a play-by-play man make. No. Uh, and, and that was instantaneously noticeable when you watched the fights. Uh, uh, but, in a, you know, a bigger picture than that, I feel like their broadcast is really good. I feel like it looks good, and their, uh, you know, Showtime would probably only help with that. But I feel like they already have a product that's entirely presentable, even if they were just going to put it on Access, you know, where I think that... But that's the, if, thing, the it, thing you can't do. Right, because if we had a fight thing in your backyard right now, Hill yeah. fights. I think I would call it hill fights. Hill fights? Yeah, or yeah. maybe hill, hill FC. Yeah, okay, well... Uh, they, they would put that on access, and yeah. we could just film it on a digital camera. Yeah, and, and the slope in my backyard, I mean, whoever captures the high ground first has yeah. a huge advantage. Oh, slope FC, I like yeah, that. Yeah, slope FC. Uh, yeah, if you hold an event uh, in the springtime when it gets really muddy down in that, that bottom corner, uh, look out. You're going to get stuck down there, trust me. One of the other things that, that, that it kind of makes me think just with this business of Ustream apparently dropping the ball on uh, on online pay-per-views and trying to use a, a you know a, a PayPal system of that was still in development or a, a pay-per-view system that was still in development it just underscores again how many fucking things can go wrong when you're trying to run a small-time MMA promotion and we always see these people come out and fail and everybody kind of looks at them and is like Oh, Affliction was stupid. You know, Lead XC was stupid. Maybe Strike Force was stupid. But holy fucking shit, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong when this is the business that you decide to get into. Yeah. Yeah, there really is. And, you know, when you look at uh, the way, especially this works in the Twitter age, because, you know, we were out at a friend's birthday gathering earlier in the night. My plan was to be home in time after the, you know, the first couple of Invicta fights had gone off. Uh and pay the the eight bucks and and see the rest of the stream but because the word had spread so fast on twitter like oh what's the stream the stream keeps crashing i can't get in whatever you know if i'm just the regular like target audience for invicta and i see all this stuff on twitter then i'm gonna be like well it's probably not worth it for me to sit here for 45 minutes and try to pay my eight dollars because even if i do somehow manage to get them to take my money then they're just going to give me a stream that keeps crashing, according to what everybody says. So it, it just kills you so fast because that word spreads. And it's also, it creates that weird thing where because on Twitter you choose your sources, you yeah, choose you your... shape your, your own world. Yeah. And so you My really, world is fucked up, man. <laughs> God damn it. It's just porn stars and... Uh, <laughs> rappers. Yeah. Rappers who tweet one word tweets. <laughs> Ambition. And you... You kind of craft your own little like sphere to where you find out what people are interested in, and so it's like it's hard for me to even really gauge because I hear people talking like, "Oh, 
nobody cares about Invicta. There's not that many people who really want to watch Invicta anyway. There's no way, you know, there's that many people that it crashes the stream. But then I look around at Twitter, and because I follow a bunch of MMA people and MMA fans, and of course Kesha, uh, then it seems like, oh shit, everybody's talking about Invicta tonight. Yeah, well, and I think that there's there's a larger issue at foot with Invicta that I think is something that we as an industry are going to have to figure out moving forward, I think. Because this when the stream went down originally, there was backlash. But I, even then, I felt like the backlash was a little bit muted. I felt like for one reason or another, uh, people were sort of willing to give Invicta the benefit of the doubt, kind of. Um, obviously there was some outrage, but I also saw a lot of people that were like, Hey man, just keep my money. You know, I don't, I don't even want it back. Uh, and I don't know if that was because they offer an all female product or if because we want to see it succeed so badly. You're right. There is Uh, something like that. But as we've discussed on this podcast before, Invicta obviously gets a lot more attention than any other independent MMA promotion of a similar size. That's true. Because it offers that unique product. And there is that thing where maybe because we're a bunch of cynical fight fans who, as you said, have seen all these other companies fail, uh, and then Invicta comes along, uh, gives a, a provides a home for female fighters, which they seem to struggle for, provides semi-regular opportunities for them to fight, which they also struggle for, pays them better than it probably has to. Uh, but yeah, we they do have a lot of goodwill among fans and right. probably among media where we want, we want to see them do well. Uh, it would, seems like it would be a better MMA world with an Invicta around. Right. So uh, the central issue that I think the media and maybe even Invicta itself and to a lesser extent fans moving forward need to figure out is exactly what kind of fight company are we dealing with in Invicta? And to put that in the shortest possible way I can think of, is Invicta big time? If... If Invicta was a men's college basketball team, would Invicta be the Montana Grizzlies or would Invicta be Gonzaga? You know what I mean? Because if Invicta is big time... I don't time, get this analogy. I don't. Well, here's what I mean. If, <laughs> if Invicta is big time, then the fact that their stream failed this weekend is a huge debacle and people ought to be raking them over the coals. If Invicta isn't big time, if it's a small fly-by-night seat of their pants independent MMA promotion, we shouldn't be covering it as much as we are. And I see what you're saying. You we're can't gonna have, have to it decide both we're gonna have to decide one way or another which one it is. Well that's always a weird thing though when you're deciding like what should get what amount of coverage. Right. I you mean know? and in the old days we get we used to get to decide. Now the internet has ruined that and we have to give people what they want. <laughs> which is one of the biggest wow. problems with media today. You're you're just the, the bitterness in your voice talking about having to give people what they want. Well, it's ruined the industry, right? <laughs> it's changed. It's changed the industry. It's been ruined. We'll say it's that. It's been ruined by that. You know, but I hear the same thing from some people, some fans who are saying like, oh, why are you media shoving Invicta down our throats? Um, to which I respond by doing stories on it. You don't have to read the stories if you look at it and you're like, well, I just categorically don't care about Invicta. Right. And there let's be let's be let's be fair. There's some weird hateful shit out there from a lot of people who seem to want women's MMA to fail. And that's weird and gross. <laughs> yeah, the people who who would 
you know, purposely not watch it in the don't do that in the interest don't of gender that. equality. Come on. Anyway, is there anything else you want to say about Invicta? Shayna Baszler lost, which I was kind of I was mad surprised about. at. I was surprised that Shayna Baszler lost. She yeah. she seemed like she kind of ran out of gas there down the stretch. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I guess what we should also though I'll, I'll tell you one last thing I'll say about Invicta. Uh-huh. Tisha Torres. That's my girl, Tisha Torres. Like, Tim Boach is your guy? I'm getting on the Tisha Torres bandwagon. TinyTornado.tv, yeah. the website I just registered. <laughs> uh, we spell tiny weird because uh, we had to just to get the domain name, but uh, I think it's going to catch on. And, hey, we briefly tried to sponsor an ultimately failed effort to get Beck Hyatt a new nickname. Yeah. That didn't Short-circuited go well. by Beck herself, who said she's never going to change her. Yeah, that, la- that you know, and you had some really good suggestions, I thought. I think Hounds of Heck is a great one for a lot of different reasons. I think uh, the ones Beck, that... Beck, Hounds of Heck, Hyatt. The one that... What was the one that required you to say it in an Australian accent in order for it to make oh, sense? Oh, Rebecca the Wrecka. Yeah, there Hyatt. you go. Yeah. Anyway. No, or the uh, the intellect. Beck the Hyatt. Yeah. The Beck the, Beck intellect, the intellect Hyatt. Hyatt. Another good one that I liked a lot. Yeah. Seemed like maybe people, other people on Twitter who were not us were taking that conversation more seriously than we were. Yeah. Which is often the case. But you're right. People ruin my jokes with facts constantly. <laughs> and I don't care. Beck Hyatt can say uh, being, you know, nicknamed Rowdy. She can say that she did it first or that it's personal to her and so she's not going to change it. If you were the Beatles first... Before the Beatles came around, and then afterwards, like, well, we're not changing our name because we were, the, hey, we were the Beatles. This name means something to us. No, it's not going to work. Yeah. You can't be the Beatles. I agree. Somebody is already the Beatles. I agree, but she says she's not going to change it. So, think about it, Beck. Let's go ahead and bring in the world's leading theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock, for another rendition of Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. And now, Master Tweet Theater. And now it's that time again when we welcome back to the podcast noted theatricalist and friend of the show, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am poised and ready. You seem poised and ready. Uh, I would even say especially poised and especially ready. Well, it's a new year, sir, and an exciting new Sir Nigel Longstock. Yeah, well, it is. And frankly, can I just say, uh, I would have laid even money that you weren't going to live to see this new year, and yet here you are, so wonders never cease. Well, I am full of surprises, and I do not remember how I survived. (laughs) All right, well, that's as it should be. Uh, For those of you who don't know how Master Tweet Theater works, Sir Nigel is going to read five tweets from someone in the MMA community. Uh, Might not necessarily be a fighter, just someone. Uh, And after each tweet, Chad and I will try and guess who the particular tweeter in question was. Sir Nigel, are you ready? I am ready, sir. Let us begin. Do the damn thing. Tweet the first. So excited for New Year's Eve tonight. Not really. Wow. Wow, that is... Who is not excited for New Year's Eve tonight? A real flat tire. Who who could that be? I'm going to say... A follower of Christ. How much fun can you have on New Year's Eve? Uh, lightweight champ Benson Henderson? Interesting. I don't know if I would have quite gone in that direction. I am going to go... Ah, fuck it. Poet Philip Baroni, because he just lost that fight. 
Well, well, both fine guesses, sir. Both informed by religious bias and or pity. Both incorrect. It is, in fact, Sean Big Sexy McCorkle. Huh. He's a guy I think would get a real kick out of uh, New Year's Eve. Maybe he gets too much of a kick out of it, and he knows he can't stop himself, and that's why he's not looking forward to it. Or do you think perhaps Big Sexy McCorkle is the kind of guy who views New Year's Eve as amateur night? Yeah. That's, that seems entirely possible. Like he's going out getting seriously tanked on like a, a Wednesday yeah. in the middle of June yeah. for no reason. Yeah, no, June 16th is his New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's tweet the second. Yes, tweet the second. Hmm. This will have a name redacted to avoid spoilers. <laughs> Exciting. <clears throat> so happy I let, name redacted, made me come to Knott's Berry Farm. I am having a blast. Wow. Well, Knott's Berry Farm is fun. I, I, I will say that from experience. It, well, wait, hold on. If the person is a 14-year-old boy, which is what I was the last time I was at Knott's Berry Farm, right, then it's right. a lot of fun. Um, this, though, to me, this sounds like Ring Girl Extraordinaire Ariane Celeste. Yeah. MMA, MMA's answer to a 14-year-old boy, Ariane Celeste Lopez. Ben Shimol. Marie. Uh, that's dead. what I was going to say. So I'm going to, I'm going to punt, I guess, scramble a little bit. And I will go with Brittany Palmer, who was forced by Ariane Celeste to go to, to Knott's Berry Farm. Is that what we're talking about? Knott's Berry Farm? Knott's Berry Farm, sir. Six Flags? No, it's not a Six Flags. Uh, and it's not even Knott's Scary Farm, which is the Halloween version, which is way cooler. Extremely scary, too. I cried like a damsel. <laughs> Brittany Palmer. <clears throat> Both fine guesses. It is neither Brittany Palmer nor Emily Celeste. Damn it! How but could that Joey be? Beltran, the executioner. Oh. Oh, well, who made him go? Yeah, who was the Helen Beltran, the <laughs> wife executioner? <laughs> I'm sorry, Joey Beltran. I'm sorry about what just happened here today. He had a great time. He had a blast. Also, he is murderously angry at you. <laughs> yeah, just be careful of that log ride. You will get wet. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen are going to get executed before you know it. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Everyone just ignore that excuse of a man Tyson something. He's trying to get hype. I'd never heard of him until he called out Kane. Hmm. Right. Tyson okay. Fury. Tyson Fury. Video game character. Uh, and we're being told we should ignore him, which seems to suggest we're talking about a... A friend of Cain Velasquez is possibly a training partner. I would say Daniel Cormier, except Daniel Cormier signs all his tweets DC. Yeah, right, you know it was him, yeah. unless that was redacted. Nothing was redacted. Well, okay. Tweets, it's like, yeah, Daniel Cormier's tweets, it's like when you get a text from your dad and he doesn't quite know how text messaging works, so he thinks he has to sign everyone, love dad. Uh, I'm going to say, though, it's got to be someone at AKA. I will say Javier Mendez. It's a good guess. Uh, I'm going to keep it in the family. And even though this doesn't include a seemingly politically confused retweet, I'm going to guess John Fitch. <laughs> Strong feelings about the UN, I think John Fitch really has. Both fun guesses, both grounded in logic, both as usual wrong. God it is damn Michael it. Bisping. What? what? Really? Ex- executing the worst strategy for ignoring someone in history. Yeah, mentioning them on your Twitter. Everyone ignore this person whom you have never heard of. Retweet. (laughs) (laughs) I would not have expected that from the count, Michael Bisping. Tweet the fifth. Fourth? Fourth. Tweet the fourth. 
Mm. It's been a while. Everyone's rusty. Yeah. Yes, Everyone is rusty. Ring rust. Yeah, they say ring rust isn't real, but it's it's totally real. I'm I'm gassed already. Tweet the fourth. Yesterday I was confronted by a big ugly scorpion. My trusty mustache destroyed it in mere seconds. Hmm. Is Don Fry on Twitter? Not to my knowledge, but I maybe. And he would slap you for suggesting as much, sir. You know, uh. I know. It, maybe it doesn't make any sense. It's it's got it's either Don Fry or a seventies porn actor, right? Sure, wandering around in the desert, maybe on a shoot. Yeah, maybe on lo- on location or for just a shoot, just coked out of his mind. Don Fry. I'm saying it's Don Fry. Hmm, if he doesn't have a Twitter, he should get one. That's interesting. Uh boy. You know, I guess I will go with also desert trainer. Lightweight champion Benson Henderson. Hmm. Both fine guesses, both desert related, but it is in fact Dan Severin. What? What the fuck? Dan Severin defeating an arachnid with his facial hair in seconds. So uh, I have multiple questions about this. Are you sure this is a real Dan Severin Twitter? No, I am not. <laughs> that would have been my first question. I would be surprised to learn Dan Severin knows how Twitter works. Well, this tweet has more questions than answers clearly i think so too you just talked to him on the phone yeah did he mention his twitter did he did, he... he did not he did mention his website though so that's it's kind of something i guess so i i have read all five of dan severin's tweets this afternoon okay oh. well then this leads me to believe it could be real <laughs> yeah. i can tell you that i think it is real because his december 31st tweet says that he is about to make an important announcement in the coming days well there you go oh, and then wow. new year's day out goes that email boosh well, huh. well, I'm surprised and delighted to learn that Sir Dan Nigel Severn's has kind of broken some news what, here. What, pray tell, Sir Nigel, is Dan Severn's Twitter handle? Uh, it is DanBeastSeven. At DanBeastSeven. All well, right. All right. Well, I, I know who I'm, I'm following. Yes, yeah, as soon as the show's over. It, it moves at a snail's pace. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet the fifth. I'm in fucking Japan. Pull up Philip Baroni with the greatest tweet of 2012. Yeah, that is classic poet Philip Baroni material. I don't see that there's any way it could be anyone else. Unless it's somebody uh, retweeting uh, McNamara. Yeah, a quote from Sartre. Yeah. It is, in fact, the poet Philip Baroni, and that is, in fact, the greatest tweet of 2012. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got that handled. Well, Sir Nigel, you've done something again, uh, whatever this was. What are you going to do in... Till uh, the next time you come by here to baffle us all with Twitter handles we didn't know existed. Well, sir, I'm glad you asked. I have recently signed on for the theatrical version of Jurassic Park 3D. Jurassic Park 3D in 4D. Well, dare I ask what role you are playing? Yes, I play the park. <laughs> the park itself. Wow, okay. Well, I feel like, uh, and don't take this the wrong way, this is going to be a, a financial and societal disaster. But thank you anyway for coming by. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the one and the only Sir Nigel Longstock. Good day, sir. Round three. Well, Ben, for a while now, the future of Eddie Alvarez has been shrouded in mystery. His previous contract with Bellator is up. And I think we all thought 
really early on that it wouldn't be too long before we saw him in the octagon. Um, as he illuminated to us this week on, appear- on an appearance on the MMA Hour with Ariel Helwani, maybe that's not the case now, as it seems that he and Bellator are embroiled in a legal battle over his future. Um, I don't know if you were able to check out the interview, but... Uh, I did. What... Uh, What's going on here with with Eddie Alvarez, and could this be a deal-breaker in a lot of different ways? Well, as Dana White warned about the situation, he said, it's going to get ugly. Yeah, and it has. I think what we're seeing now is stuff getting ugly. I'm, you, you I think, alluded earlier to Eddie Alvarez's brilliant analogy. Yes, uh, yeah. Well, no, I have it here. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, by all means. Uh, this is Eddie Alvarez on the situation between himself, Bellator, and the UFC. If I wanted to go to dinner with one guy who asked me to dinner, and another guy asked me to do dinner, and the intentions of guy number one is to take me to a fine dining restaurant and to eat lobster, and the intention of the second guy is to maybe take me to McDonald's, guy number two just believes that dinner is dinner. Dinner isn't dinner. There's a huge difference when you're talking McDonald's or some fine dining. The two we don't believe are comparable. First of all, this is, are we sure we're not reading a a failed Seinfeld plot? (laughs) I don't know. You know, given what we heard from Matt Mitrione a couple weeks ago, (laughs) that that seems to come very much from the school, the the Mitrionic school of, uh, of, of metaphor. However, I mean, this one makes sense. This one makes sense at least. Yeah. And you know, it presents a a difficult, complex problem in a situation we can all relate to where a couple of guys are trying to take you to dinner. Right. So, we, I mean, we've all been there. Right, yeah. Now, we but, should point out before we go on that, that what seems to be the sticking point between Eddie Alvarez, Bellator, and the UFC is that Bellator has the option to match Eddie Alvarez's right. contract offer from the UFC. So the UFC has made Eddie Alvarez an offer, and Bellator has made a matching offer that Eddie Alvarez's camp believes does not match. Yes, which would seem, at least at first, like it should be pretty easy to tell whether this thing matches or not. Uh, until, I think, we get into thinking about the way the UFC is known to offer its fighters other stuff that might not necessarily be in the contract. Yeah, see, and if, if I had to guess, just from hearing Eddie Alvarez talk about it on the MMA Hour, and let me say, by the way, that I found it legitimately compelling and endearing to watch Eddie Alvarez talk about his contract situation while his children ran to and fro behind him in his house while he was on his video chat with, with Ariel Hawani. It, would, it provided some context and really underscored uh, what we're really talking about here, Eddie Alvarez's ability to feed those kids. Right. And, you know, I talked to Bjorn Rebney, uh Earlier this afternoon, by this afternoon, I mean Breaking news Monday, here on the while, Co-Main while Event talking, Podcast. Uh, you know, obviously they had, they had been feeling a lot of calls, I think, that day about it. Uh, I already had an interview set up with them to talk about for, for a different story I'm doing. Oh, brag, brag, we, brag. We, we, t- <laughs> we talked about it. Uh, what he claims is that their offer exactly matched yeah. what, the, what is on paper with the UFC. See, he said that they took the UFC's offer, took it out of a PDF form, changed UFC to Bellator, did not change any of the numbers or terms or anything, and sent it back to Eddie and said, sign it and we got a check that we'll send over to you right away. Right. And if I had to guess, I guess I did not finish my my point from earlier, but if I had to guess, 
my guess would be that Bellator did in fact match the financial number that's on paper with the UFC, but it is the belief of the Alvarez camp and probably the accurate belief that the UFC contract is going to be is going to come equipped with other financial perks that Bellator motorcycles can't, can't provide. Like maybe they're going to give him a Harley Free fucking Harleys. Davidson yeah. and he can turn around and either get in a horrible accident or sell it for, you know, however much they cost. Yeah. Which is, God knows. God knows how much. A million dollars yeah. for all I know. There he goes. A cool million. Or maybe they're going to have him coach the ultimate fighter or something where he's going to, you know, there's going to be a financial incentive involved and, and Bellator can't match that. Although I guess Bellator is now has their own reality show coming up on Spike. So maybe that wasn't a good example. Or maybe they'll give him one of those sweet UFC sponsorships. Yeah. they've been known to do yeah okay so there's all that kind of stuff and this is the we you know we've seen uh if we are talking about the ufc's just handed out bonuses that aren't on paper anywhere we've seen the ufc have trouble with this before i mean remember what randy couture got pissed off about when he first wanted to leave the ufc that was kind of at the root of it and so you can see how that that murkiness around that subject can create this kind of confusion where Dudes don't exactly know how much money they're getting for what right. they're doing. So that is kind of a weird thing, and maybe that's what's behind this thing. Maybe it's it's more complicated than that. The problem, I would think, for Bellator is that right now, rightly or wrongly, there's this perception out there that uh, what Bellator does is take fighters, lock them down, and make it difficult for them to go and do anything else, even when it might be in that guy's best interest and even when he might really want out, uh, and that they somehow abuse the contractual situation in a way that the UFC doesn't do. Yeah. Rightly or wrongly, that perception is out there. And it's disastrous, kind of. Like, I don't know how much is going to impact Bell Bellator's profile with fans at large, but to me, it's it's disastrous to, to think that about Bellator because you always hear Dana White talking about how Bellator's dirty and they do dirty shit behind the scenes. And God damn it, this makes it seem like he's right about that. It makes it seem like they are doing dirty shit behind the scenes. Now, granted... I've only heard one side of the story. I didn't have an exclusive with Bjorn Rebney today that I, I actually already did talk had to set Bjorn up Rebney. before the news broke. It was, we were, it was not a big deal. We were scheduled to talk. But go on. You were saying about how you don't know what's going on. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me like kind of a no-win situation for Bellator because what are you going to do? Like twist Eddie Alvarez's arm and legally obligate him to be your biggest star? Like that doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. like it's going to work to me. I guess – you could compel him to come back and fight for your organization. But if he's there, then, you know, along with Michael Chandler and, and I guess King Mo, who hasn't fought for them yet, then he's your biggest star. He's your biggest, you know, drawing chip. And I don't think that having him be there against his will is going to ultimately prove to be a positive relationship for anyone. It seems like Bellator should do what the UFC would do. Tell Eddie Alvarez to fuck off and then talk a bunch of shit about him after he left. <laughs> he wasn't even that good anyway. Yeah, he got beat by Michael got Chandler. Got beat by I Michael mean, Chandler. What the hell else do you need to champ. know? Yeah. No, that is what the UFC would do there, it seems. Uh, but then again, uh, remember when Randy Couture tried to walk away uh, and resign his post as UFC heavyweight champion, which is a hilarious thing to do, really. Just the kind of stuff that happens to the UFC heavyweight title. I resign from this contract. Uh, so that he could go off and, and do some other stuff. And, yeah, the UFC kind of made it clear to him that do you really want to waste away the last profitable years as a fighter you have in, in court, or do you want to come back and make nice? Now, maybe they had some leverage there that uh, Bellator doesn't necessarily have with Eddie Alvarez here, uh, but 
we can't forget that the UFC has done that. I mean, the UFC has, in a way, twisted the guy's arm to come back and be a star for them. Right, for sure. But you were, I mean, the what I would be wondering if I'm Bellator is not only, like, what kind of relationship are you going to have with Eddie Alvarez if he does come back, if you do re-sign him, is that if you're a young fighter coming up and you're looking at your options, remember when somebody asked us a mailbag question about what do you do if you're, like, a 6-0 and or 7-0 and fighter yeah. and you get offered a Bellator contract, like a spot in a Bellator tournament, a, a tough deal or a strike force deal. And it was a strike force, you know, post-Zufa purchase where it was kind of a dead-end thing. And we were forced to conclude, sadly, that your best option is probably the ultimate fighter. Now, how does that get better if the perception is out there that, you know, when Bellator gets you, uh, they'll just sink their hooks into you and, and that's it. You're stuck there. At the same time, though, what do you want Bellator to do? Build up these guys on TV, spend a lot of time promoting them so that uh, when they get a little, little bit of uh, success and, and people start wanting them, then so long. We just built up that guy so we could catapult him into the UFC, which is probably exactly what a lot of fighters are hoping for. Well, yeah, and unfortunately that sucks, but that's the business that all these other MMA promotions are in at this point because the UFC has been able to so solidify their dominance over the market. Like if you are even Invicta, like you're probably at least positioning 135 pounders to go to the UFC. You know what I mean? And like that's that's probably the 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 upper level for you as a as a a mid-major MMA promotion and you know a, a promotion like Tachi Palace fights I think probably handled it the correct way when they basically said we know that our top fighters are going to go to the UFC in fact that's sort of what we're here for you can't do that when you're Bellator and you're you're having this big premiere on Spike later this month and you know Viacom owns a a majority stake in your company i mean you, you at that point you've thrown your hat in that ring to be big time Right. You're going to go, you're yeah, gonna go no, to the mattresses you're right. here. You're right. Bellator can't do that. What they can do is cut Alvi, Eddie Alvarez and talk shit about him on TV, which they probably should have done. And the thing is, Bellator gets the chance right now to kind of wipe the slate clean because they're going to start on Spike. There's tons of people out there who don't know what Bellator is right now, but they're going to stumble upon it on Spike TV, probably when they're looking for the UFC, as we've been led to believe, that there or are Mancers. lots of people that haven't figured out that the UFC isn't on Spike Maybe they now. want they're, some Mancers to some Manquins. They're trying to trying watch to do one man million ways to die or whatever the yeah. other show of gold. What was that show that Bellator had about... Uh, didn't they have a show? Or, I mean, that Spike had about... Uh, Blue Mountain State? No, no, about like gold, Deadliest Warrior? gold miners or uh, coal. coal. It was called coal! It was called coal. Exclamation point. Yeah. How'd that work out? Is that still... I think that, everyone associated doing? with it got depressed and shot themselves in the face. They all died of black lung? <laughs> yes. That is the problem with the old coal mining show. Okay, but here's the thing. You mentioned Invicta and they're, you know, hey, they're in the same position that all the... the yeah, I mean, at least they have other weight classes. But. Yeah. But when I talk to Shannon Knapp about it, and here might be the thing where, over, like, Shannon Knapp can at times be perhaps overly optimistic uh, about Invicta's future or women's MMA's future or something, but her answer was... Yeah, our 135-pounders, if what it means to be the 135-pound champion Invicta is that uh, you really are hoping to, to make the jump to the UFC and take your shot there, okay. But ideally, a fight promotion should want to create an environment that your fighters want to stay. like that. And I think that there is something to that. I mean, it's easier said than done, but if your fighters, just to begin with, want to leave you, if they see you as a way to get somewhere else then you already kind of have a built-in problem. Yeah, and, and like you said, the, the real 
tragedy and all of this. Eddie Alvarez actually spoke to it when he was on the MMA hour talking about how he's going to turn 29 next week. And he feels (laughs) he feels like, you know, he's about to enter the prime of his career. And at this point, he's going to start the prime of his career in litigation, which is not where you want to be, no matter if you're 42 year old Randy Couture or 29 year old Eddie Alvarez. So where he ultimately ends up and what he decides to do is is probably up in the air. But again, these guys aren't dealing with, you know, an, an endless window for there to for them to make good on their athletic traits. So. Can time eat at McDonald's forever is what yeah, you're saying. Time, time is not on their side as a those Big Macs will kill you. As a general rule, you think Eddie Alvarez is throwing down a lot of Big Macs? He seems more like a chicken nugget guy, like a Chick Fil A kind of guy. Yeah, those aren't. That's not real chicken, by the way. No, what is it? No. Which in the nugget or the fillet? The, the nugget. Well, that's it's got to be real chicken. No, it's not real chicken. No, it's like beaks and. You ever and looked inside one? Chicken feet go, gra- go ground up. Right when we're done here, swing by McDonald's. Get yourself some chicken nuggets. Look inside there. I'm always afraid because I'm afraid I'm going to bite into one and there's going to be an eyeball in there staring back at me. That's not even the worst case scenario, Dundas. <laughs> it could get, it gets a lot worse. I guess. I don't know, man. Eyeball. At least eyeball is organic. Well, yeah, okay. But wouldn't, what, what would be worse? Soiled condom, I suppose. Yeah. I think biting into that and having a dead chicken eyeball staring out at you would be terrible. Oh, it's a chicken eyeball? Oh, yeah. What the, hey, you take that. That's the that's the deal you make. Well, not a human eyeball, obviously. Well, I thought that's what we were talking about. <laughs> You're sick. You're a sick man. All right, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then then we'll get out of here. Ben, I know you have one on the tip of your tongue. Yes. You're just saying stuff for this week. Well, you know, we were just recently talking about Invicta and the failed uh, pay-per-view stream. Uh, Ustream took the blame for that one, talking about their 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 paywall being in kind of a, a beta form. Which, hey, I'm just saying, if you were going to give me a cash register to operate at my business, which allows me to take money and therefore stay in business, and after you offered me this cash register said, by the way, yeah, we don't really know if it works, probably has some bugs in there, and sometimes you'll ring it up and you'll be short 200 bucks. Uh, but anywho, here you go. Good luck. I'm just saying, that's where uh, I rethink my whole strategy. Hmm, just saying. Just saying. This week, I'm just saying that I noticed the uh, UFC running some promos during the NFL playoffs this weekend for its upcoming show on Fox, and the and the the commercials take the somewhat vague marketing strategy of informing us that Demetrius Johnson and Dod- and John Dodson will be fighting at this event for the quote unquote world title. Yeah. Now, I know we're all happy just to see the UFC get a mention during primetime football, but I feel like we're getting to the point where we need to segue out of the just happy to be here phase and into the, hey, let's sell some fucking fights stage. And I feel like by not mentioning the fact that this is a flyweight title fight makes me feel like the UFC is trying to hide from people what it really is just makes me feel like they're not confident in the product like they want people to turn tune in to see the world title not that you know it's going to be 225 pound guys in there if it was heavyweight you can bet they'd say heavyweight championship so at the end of the day i guess i'm just saying let's just say what what's fucking happening at this show and not try to pull the wool over people's eyes about who the fighters are going to be. Hey, but did you notice during that ad, uh, Joe Buck uh, pronounces Glover Teixeira's name right? I did not notice that. Yeah. 
Someone spelled that out for him phonetically, I'm sure of it. Yeah, well, good for good for Joe Buck. Or yeah. it could be his baseball. He could uh, just oh, yeah? Mark yeah. Tashira there you uh, go. and Glover Tashira pronounced the same way. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be back next week to continue breaking down the happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. As for now, that's the show for this week. We're done. We're through. We're out. All I'm saying here is that if you give me like a hierarchy of eyeballs, like if I have to eat an eyeball... I'm just, I'm interested to know what your theory of what is in the chicken nugget. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to find out that it's not chicken. I just uh, want to know what you think it is. I think the number one ingredient is despair. Uh,